Please come up. Give Pastor Eddie a round of applause, please. All right. This is... All right. I'm going to ask him one question and then I'm going to pass it over to Pastor Eddie. Um, what is your fondest moment or memory with Pastor Steve? Because uh, we have heard a little bit and you guys go a fair bit back. So I'm going to leave it up to you. I'm going to go down and talk. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for that, Dave. Uh, my fondest memory... It's hard to say. My, most of my fondest memories... Or my fondest moments with Steve, you know, they're like MA15, you know, they're like, you know, maybe not appropriate for church. Not that there's anything, you know, bad or anything, it's just, you know, it's, it's things that we try not to share with others, we try to keep to ourselves. But uh, if I can just turn around the question, you know, it's, uh, Steve has been probably maybe my best friend ever since I came from America to Australia. I came in 2005. And, uh, you know, Steve, back then I was like 32 years old or something like that. Steve had just graduated uni, so we're like 10-year 10, 10 difference. But you know, he has always been like a true brother to me. He's always there. He, you know, he was always there for me whenever I would go through all my personal struggles. You know, I was a pastor for a very long time. Um, when I would go through a lot of difficulties, you know, with my previous church, he would, he would always be there to comfort me. He would always come over, even if it's like 2 a.m., you know, he'd take me to Harry's down at Willamaloo because that was the only thing that was like 24-7 back then. You know, or we would just, and we would just talk all night. And, you know, he was always there for me. And so, you know, I, I think I'm very thankful. You know, I th- even, even now to this day, we still talk, you know, once a month or something like that. We play golf together. We share all of our struggles. We share all of our difficulties, all of our heart struggles, our marriage struggles, everything with each other. And what I love about Steve the most is that, you know, number one, he's just real. You can just be honest. and You don't have to fake anything, which I love. Because sometimes, you know, with other Christians, you kind of have to fake it. With other pastors, you kind of have to fake it a little bit, you know, to kind of show them that you actually love Jesus more than maybe you do or something. You know, you have to fake it a little bit. With Steve, I love what I love about our friendship is that it's always honest. It's always true. We're always passionate about wanting to do something for the kingdom, wanting to do more for the kingdom. And so... I love him because he's not only a brother that uh, comforts me in times of trouble, always there with me when I'm going through tough times, but he's always an inspiration and a challenge to me. So that, you know, he always makes me want to do more for Christ. And we know that we need those types of friendships within our lives. Whether we're pastors or not, we need those types of friendships. So there's my answer, okay? Without sharing any of those moments or, or those things. You could ask Steve, you know, Steve... Uh, I used to pastor at this church over in Tilopia for the past about four and a half years. Whenever I'm on holiday, I used to always invite him to come speak. And because our, our service is much earlier than you guys, he would always say yes. He's such a great friend. But, you know, the things that he says when he comes to guest speak at my church or my old church, it's very like, you know, Steve is a very, well, I say a lot of great things about Steve. Steve takes credit for a lot of things I don't think he deserves to take credit for, you know. <laughs> he, like, comes over and he says, you know, I, I brought... Eddie and his wife together. I made it happen. I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't make that happen. You know, I'm always one saving Eddie whenever he's in trouble. I'm like, no, just maybe that once, you know, or something like that. But he takes a lot of credit for a lot of things. But I love him. I know you love him, and that's why you're here. And, you know, he asked me to come speak today, and I'm very honored that, uh, I'm very honored that we can just worship. Can I just be, can I share one more thing, and then I'll get to my message? My message is really simple, so... You know, uh, my, I, I, I recently left a, a pastoral position at a church, and so I haven't been pastoring for the past two months. 
And it's actually been wonderful. <laughs> there's like no stress of there's like no stress of my life. My wife is like, oh my goodness, you know, you're losing weight and you look so happy all the time. You're like serving me hand and foot. You're like the greatest father in the world for the past two months, you know. <laughs> but before that, I was a wreck. Anyway, but uh, you know, we've been visiting. Uh, I live way out northwest, Marsden Park. You know, if you know where the new Costco out is, I way out in Marsden Park. I live right there, so it's really far. And um, you know, so I just, you know, I've been pastoring for so long that I, I don't really know what God's doing in that area. So we decided to go visit churches in that area to see what God's doing. And some are great, you know, and wonderful. And some are, you know, still great, but just, you know, we don't vibe with, you know, some churches you vibe with, some churches you just don't. And we went to one this morning and we walked out and my wife and I were like, whoa, we're never going to come back there again, <laughs> you know. And, you know, but the reason why I share that, I don't want to say negative things about a different church, but... What, the reason why I say that is because just sitting here, worshiping with the band, and just feeling the vibe of what's going on here, I, I, it's so wonderful. You know, it's so, you know, I love entering into a church where the band is very joyous, you know, and passionate, where I could hear the voices, maybe even above the band, because you guys just want to sing. And, you know, there's a sense of just joy and love in this room that, you know, you really don't find in a lot of churches, and so can I just say thank you for that? Uh, it just reminds me how wonderful it is to be in Christ. Sometimes when you visit other churches, even though you went to church, sometimes you feel like, man, did I just miss out on God? But I feel like we're, I'm not missing out on God right now, and so I'm just really thankful. So there we go. I'm just trying to butter you up so you listen to the message. But, you know, but it works, right? It works. Anyway, so let's get to our passage today. It comes from Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. One. Let's read the word of God together. There was a rich, I'm reading out of the ESV. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted, it, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you so much that, you know, sometimes when we come to church, we just think we're coming to church to, you know, do great churchy things. But there are times when we come to church where we really get confronted by your truth. And Lord, we thank you for your parable today, for this passage today. And we pray, God, that you will uplift these hearts and these souls in this room, God, to want you more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You know, when, uh, when Pastor Steve asked me to speak, uh, I was very positive. I said, yeah, th- of course. You know, you've always come to my rescue. So, of course, if you're going on a holiday for a long time, of course, I'll preach for you. Just, of course. And then he said, oh, and can you preach on the parables through Luke? I said, oh, that's awesome. Because the, the parables in Luke are awesome. They're wonderful. I love them. I said, of course, of course, of course. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, can you preach on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And I, then I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know? Because this, this particular parable, I love the parables because there's always a great spiritual lesson behind the parables. But this particular one is a very confronting parable. It's a very heavy parable. It's a very difficult parable sometimes to listen to. Um, but, you know, it's something that we really need to hear in our generation, I think, today. Because it, it really deals with a lot of issues about life, Christian life, the way we live, eternity, and the eternal implications of the way we live and all these kind of things. Even in the story, we see a guy actually suffering in hell, begging for help from people in heaven. I mean, it's a very confronting story. And so there are a lot of issues in this story that I think a lot of people might have questions about. I have decided to not address a lot of those issues through this message today. I just want to get to, to one core issue that I think Jesus is addressing, just one of the many issues that Jesus is addressing, and I thought I would share that with you today. So, you know, our passage might, today might be a complex one, but I think it's pretty obvious to me that Jesus is making two very huge points, if not three, which I'll share at the end. But here are the two points that I think Jesus is making through this passage. Number one, there is an eternal connection between who you say you believe in and how you choose to live your life on earth, okay? There's an eternal connection between who you say you believe in and how you choose to live your life on earth. And second, because of that, there is an eternal connection between how you choose to live your life on earth and where you end up after you die, okay? So yes, we're going to go there, right? Heaven and hell, all that kind of stuff. So do you guys understand that? Do you guys get that? Is that pretty clear? Let's talk about the first point. There's a connection between who you say you believe in and how you live. Now, what you need to understand about this particular parable is that both the rich man and Lazarus are Jews. They're both Jewish people. How do we know that? When we read this passage, uh, we see that when Abraham addresses this rich man and says, hey, you know Moses, you know the prophets, you know all these things, the rich man totally understood all those things, which proves to us that this rich man actually went to temple. This rich man went to church, and he knew all the stories He was a pretty good Jew on the outside. And so even when he called Abraham, he calls Abraham Father Abraham in the story. And only Jews do that, right? Because Abraham is the father of only the Jewish people, okay? So he's a Jew. And in the context of this parable, and this is the context of this parable, you know, Jesus is telling this particular parable right after he rebuked the Pharisees for being religious, all religious on the outside, but on the inside, They weren't at all. They actually lived lives of self-indulgence. You know, even on the outside, they were very religious. But in reality, when you looked at their lives, they were living lives of self-indulgence. And so their lives didn't prove their faith. So, you know, I don't know if you guys do this, but just five verses before in verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed Christ. And he said, and Christ said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying very clearly that these people 
who called themselves followers of God should have been living their lives for God. That's very, that's, that's, that's as simple, that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you call, your, the thing is, what's the problem with you guys, you Pharisees, is that you guys call yourselves followers of God. You tell other people that you follow God. You look all religious on the outside, but in reality, you don't live for God at all. You live for yourself, right? Instead, these guys, and Jesus said it very simply, he said they were going after things in this life like money, status, the admiration of the world, and all the nice toys they could get, right? Um, and if you're ever unsure as to what God thinks about believers going after those things in this life, verse 15 kind of makes it clear. It says, those desires are an abomination in the sight of God. That's really brutal, right? You know, that's really brutal for him to say. But I think it's something that's necessary for us in this particular generation to hear. Right. Uh, so what's the point? What am I saying? What's the whole point of all this? Jesus is saying that people who say they follow after Jesus should actually live a life that follows after Jesus. That's it. If you call yourself a believer in Christ, then your life should prove it. People should be able to look at your life, see what you do, see the choices that you make, see the things that you buy, see the motives, if they can, behind the things that you do, and come to this conclusion, wow, I think that guy is really a believer. I think that guy really follows Jesus. Your life has to prove who you say you believe in. Do you guys get that? Is that very simple? Is that, and that's the whole point of this thing. And Jesus tells this parable to illustrate that. Our story begins in verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus is very intentional about describing this rich man um, as one who enjoyed a lifestyle of self-indulgence. Do you see that? It says that he wore the most expensive clothes. It says that he ate the most lavish food, right? His life was all about making himself happy. All the while, it says, ignoring this poor, starving, diseased beggar right outside of his gates in verse 20, which is Lazarus. Okay, So the picture that we're getting here is that this, this rich man, all he cared about was living for himself. Even though he went to temple, he said he believed in God, he's all religious on the outside. When you looked at his life, all he did was live to make himself happy. He chased after money, status, you know, the admiration of everybody else in this world, and a lot of great toys, right? Which is what a lot of us go after. Anyway, now the thing is, we don't know much about this poor guy, Lazarus, but we learn a little bit more about him in the next verse. In the next verse, what happens is both the rich man and Lazarus die. La uh, the rich man goes to hell or to Hades, and Lazarus, uh, he just doesn't go to heaven, does he? Right, when you read uh, verse 21, right, or verse 22, it says that when Lazarus died... These angels came down and carried him, not only into heaven, but where does it say it carried him to? It says it carried him into the side of Abraham. Now, if in the original language, it literally says that the angels carried him onto the bosom or the chest of Abraham. And the picture that we're getting here is that these angels, the moment Lazarus died, they came down, they carried him, and they brought him to lay down on Abraham's chest. Is that very intimate, right? That's really beautiful, number one. But that's also really intimate. And I think that was the whole point. The picture that we were to see is this, this great intimacy, this great love that is shared between God, the angels, this Lazarus, and even Abraham. And you, what you could tell, and if there's anything that we can conclude, is that Lazarus, even though he was poor, even though he was diseased and starving, all this, it doesn't matter. Lazarus was a man that truly loved God. Do you guys get that in that picture? 
right? That the, to, to the extent that God had to send angels to carry. I don't know if God sends angels to carry everyone who dies into heaven, but he did here. And so Lazarus must have been a man that truly loved God. And if we can come to another conclusion, it's probably this. If the rich man is in hell, the rich man probably wasn't a man that truly loved God. Is that cool? Can we come to that conclusion? I think so. And so um, those are the rich man. He's suffering in hell. And he, he turns to Abraham. I guess you can see people. If you're in hell, I guess you can see people in heaven, right? which is another issue we could probably talk about in a different message. But he looks, at, he looks into heaven and he says, Abraham, can you please send that guy Lazarus to come, you know, give me some relief here. I'm dying in these flames. And then Abraham says this in verse 25, 26. He says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. And, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. What's he saying here? Here, Abraham is telling something very confronting. He's saying this. He's saying, he's saying to the rich man, the reason why you are in suffering in hell right now, the reason why you are suffering in hell right now is because you lived your life on earth for yourself. You may have called yourself a believer. You may have gone to church. You may have done all the religious things that caught the attention of the public. But the bottom line is that when God looked at your life, you lived it for yourself and not for him. There was a total, if I can say it like this, there was a total disconnect between who he said he believed in and how he actually lived his life. Do you guys see that? Right, so that's what he's saying. Now I know, and so because of that, he went to hell. That's exactly what Abraham said, okay? Now I know that sounds a lot like we're talking about our salvation is dependent upon how we live our lives, but that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what the scriptures are saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. So I wanna just take a moment to clarify here and talk about salvation a little bit. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, right? We all learned that. I know, I know Steve, he would have taught you that really, really clearly. It really is. God, you know, salvation is by God's grace. It's God's choice to come and save you. And it's, it's by his grace that he gives you this wonderful free gift of forgiveness of sins, this wonderful free gift of adoption to become one of his children. And that all can be had and obtained if we simply trust in Christ, have put our faith in Christ alone. And when Christ died upon the cross, not only did he die to forgive us of all of our sins, but he had died to, and it, but when he resurrected from the dead, that proved not only that he was a perfect God, but that he could fully atone for all of our sins. And so if we have faith in Jesus Christ, that's what saves us, right? Is that cool? So salvation really is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And salvation is not by our works at all. It's not by our obedience and is not by our choices or our lifestyle of any kind. So when we say that there's this connection between who you say you believe and how you live, what we're saying is that if you're truly saved, if you truly have faith in Christ, then it will show in your life. Your life should prove that you actually follow Jesus. Isn't that cool? Is that cool? That's exactly what this is saying. The way you choose to live proves whether you truly have faith in Christ 
or not. And that point is reinforced all throughout Scripture. You know, I know when we look at the Apostle Paul, I know you probably heard any sermon about the Apostle Paul. He was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians. But all of a sudden, he met Jesus, and that transformed his life. And now he lives for Christ. You know, you guys know, there's a guy named Zacchaeus. You guys know Zacchaeus? He was like the short tax collector. He had to climb a tree to go see Jesus. There's a story like that in the, in the New Testament. And, you know, he, was, he cheated everybody out of all their money because he was the chief tax collector. But the moment he met Jesus, the moment he encountered God's grace, it transformed the way he lived. He ran out of his house saying, hey, I just met Jesus. And so because of that, I tell you what, I'm going to give my money to the poor. And if I cheated anybody, I'm going to give back three times the amount. You know, his life and the direction of his life totally changed because of his faith in Christ. I call that a true biblical faith, right? Um, And so if we understand that clearly, the second point that we're making here makes total sense. There is an eternal connection between how we live and where we end up eternally, right? For those who have true faith in Christ and who prove it through their lives, they go to heaven, and for those who say they may believe in Jesus, they might do a lot of outwardly religious things, but they truly don't have that faith, and they, therefore they truly don't you know, live for Christ, but live for themselves, they go to hell. Okay, tough, tough words to preach, even for me to say. But this is what the Bible says, and this is true. You know, but once again, to reinforce our obedience, it's our works, our performance in this life is not what determines, determines whether we go to heaven or not. It really is by faith in Christ alone. And just to kind of hammer this point down, uh, this is what I want to say. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18, you don't have to turn that. I'll read it to you. It says this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone puts their faith in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is completely gone and the new has come. What is this verse saying? It's saying that the moment people put their faith in Christ, there's no way that you can live the same life that you lived right? True faith in Christ transforms the life to now live for Jesus. That's the only option. The whole trajectory of your life changes. James 2, 14 and 15 says this. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have the works to back it up? Can that faith actually save him? Meaning, can we call that genuine faith? Is that the kind of faith that really comes from encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the answer is no, right? But if that's not real faith, is he saved? And the answer is no. And so here's the conclusion that James comes to in verse 17. He says, so also by faith itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this, and if I can just, this is what I'm saying the whole time. If you have true faith in Christ, your life should prove it. That's what it's saying. And if your life proves it, you go to heaven, right? The quiet, the harder question is, I do believe in Jesus, Eddie. But I don't know if my life proves it that much. So where, where do I stand, right? That's the harder question, isn't it? And I'll, and I'll, and I'll share that with you. Uh, we'll get to that. You know, when you look at this rich man's life, there was absolutely no proof. He said he believed in God. He went to church, did all the right things religiously, but he didn't really live for God. And because of that, he never truly loved God like Lazarus did. And as a result, he lived a life of self-indulgence, lived his life just like everyone else in the world did, and therefore he ended up in hell. Now, um, I'm going to guess that everything that I just taught you in the past, like 15 minutes, nothing's that new to you, right? which is cool. But if you're like me, whenever you study a passage like this, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. 
Um, because what this passage is really doing is that it's forcing us to question the quality of our faith, right? It's forcing us to question the quality of my faith, my commitment, my devotion, and my life to Christ. And that's exactly what it's supposed to do. You know, and, this, and that's exactly what I think Jesus wants us to question today. You know, I think it's a very sobering exercise, uh, and it's very confronting, but I think it's such, a, it's such a necessary exercise, especially for us in our generation today. You know, it's so easy to go to church, isn't it? To kind of just say you believe in the right things, to sing, the right, sing all the songs, and do everything right. But maybe deep in your heart, you never really have to question whether you truly love Jesus and you're following him, you're going hardcore after him. Because you know that in a lot of churches, they let you get away with it. They'll never question you. They'll just be like, dude, if you do those things on the outside, yeah, we like it. We love it. We love that you come. We love your attendance. We love your offering. And we're cool with that. You know, you can kind of get away with that maybe for your whole life. But what Jesus is saying in this passage is, hey, I don't want you to. Not only are you wasting your earthly life doing that, it may not even count for eternity. And it won't. You know? And so what he wants you to do is to look at your faith honestly and ask yourself, hey, man, am I really living for God? When I know I say I have faith in Jesus, I know I love Jesus deep inside my heart, but why doesn't my life look like that? You know, as I was preparing for this message, I turned to my wife. She had no idea what I was preaching on. I'm just preparing this. And I turned to my wife and I said, hey, honey, do you think if people looked at our lives, if they looked at our credit card statement, you know, if they looked at the choices that we'd made in the past month, or, and, and if they could, if they could look at our motives behind the choices that we make, do you think they would come to the conclusion that we're Christians, that we follow after Jesus? And before I could finish the question, she goes, no way. Right? Because our credit card statement, it's all about us. You know, the choice that we made, it's all about our happiness. It's all about our relaxation. It's all about our pampering or whatever it is. You know, it's all about us. And so, you know, there was something within us. You know, we truly love Jesus. My wife and I, we really do love Jesus. We want to live for Jesus. We want to make him greater through our marriage. We want people to come to Christ through us. We want people to see Jesus through us. Um, and so we knew right away when I asked that question, she knew right away when, when, she, when I asked that question, that something had to change, right? Because if you say you believe in Jesus, your life should prove it. And so we talked about some of the changes that we should make, you know, some of the changes, some of the changes that we wanted to make in our finances, some of the changes that we wanted to make in our commitments and into the people around us, non-Christian neighbor, all that stuff. But what we realized, even after talking for like 15, 20 minutes, is that even if we had made all those changes, I wonder how much would really change. Why? Because we realized that the core issue wasn't so much doing all the right things or all the wrong things and erasing the wrong things and adding more right things. What we realized that the core, the real issue why we weren't living for Jesus hardcore, the real issue why we weren't sold out for Christ, the real issue why our lives did not prove our confession of faith was because we were genuinely distant from Christ personally, you know? In our walks, we weren't doing, I asked, how's your walk with Christ? And she was like, no, it's not that great. She's like, how's yours? I'm like, oh, it's not that great. You know, I can't remember the last time I actually talked to Jesus sincerely and I heard something. I can't remember the last time I was inspired by Christ. I can't remember the last time I felt secure in my identity in Christ and I lived that day out of that confidence. I can't remember the last time I, I just trusted God for that day and loved him. I can't remember the last time I felt loved by him or I actually was worshiping him genuinely and was loving him genuinely in my life. And my wife was like, me too. And what we realized that the real core issue behind our life not proving our faith was that we were disconnected from Christ. You know, we weren't genuinely 
intimately connected. I love that picture of Lazarus laying down on Abraham's chest. We were not intimately connected with Christ. And we realized that the real problem was our hearts, you know. And what we were doing for the past few months is instead of meeting Christ and just running to Christ and spending time with Christ and falling deeply in love with him, being reconnected with him, we chose instead to appease ourselves by just doing more religious things on the outside, to kind of even try to fool ourselves that we're actually, again, being good. You know what I'm talking about? Do you know Christians, we do that sometimes? That's what we do, and that's what we've been doing. We're trying to change that now. It's so easy to replace a vibrant faith that walks closely with Jesus with a professional Christian one. You know what I'm saying? It's so easy to do that. And, you know, if there's anything I can, I can you know, I, I can plead with you, please don't become someone who does that. Um, but if you are, you know, our passage has some good news. It has some bad news. Here's the bad news. If you're the type of person that might be satisfied with just kind of doing Christian, Christian-y things on the outside and not really taking to heart what God's really saying, you know, he wants to be connected intimately with you. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that God knows, okay? You know, you can fool everybody here at church. You can fool everybody here on earth. Everybody on earth can think that you're a great Christian, that you're a great, you know, follower of Jesus, all the stuff. And you can do all the stuff to prove it externally. But the thing is, you can't fool God, you know? You really can't. You know, this rich man, he ended up in hell and... What's tough about that is Abraham says, the moment you go to hell or heaven, you can't cross over, right? Which means that the decision to go to heaven or hell has to be made in this life while you're living here on earth. And so the bad news is that if you choose not to change in this life and not to truly follow after Christ and live for Jesus in this life, if you choose not to respond to and connect with Christ, your fate might be very similar to the rich man. You, you know, after you die... You may not be surrounded by angels. That's what this text is saying. And the thing is, none of us want you there. Pastor C doesn't want you there. I don't want you there. I don't even know you. I don't want you there. You know, none of us want you there. But here's the good news. The good news, the bad news is that God knows. But the good news is that God knows. He does. The good news is that God knows. He knows that we're sinners. He knows that we make mistakes. He knows that we can never be 24-7 faithful completely to him with all that we are. He knows all that. Right? And that's why he sent Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, he sent Jesus Christ to forgive us of all of our unfaithfulness, of all of our sinfulness, of all of our wanderings, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Right? That's us. He doesn't expect us to be completely perfect. And Jesus died not so that we could become these professionalized, perfect Christians. He didn't. I know sometimes we get that sense if we grew up in church that Jesus Christ died so that we could become these per- perfect, professionalized Christians. But Jesus Christ did not die for that. He died so that we could have this genuine faith, so we could live this life of genuine faith that is born out of this intimate, genuine connection with Christ. This love relationship that, you know, that every single day you feel like you're on God's bosom and heaven would be no different than what your life would be on earth because of that intimate, genuine connection and love relationship that you have with him. That's what he died for. And that's what we were created for. And this relationship, you know, if you have that with him, you know what it does? It brings his flavor. It brings his goodness. It brings his holiness and his purity and his justice into this world through us. And that is what we were created for, right? I'm going to assume that no one in this room 
wants to go to hell, right? Nobody does, right? Good. And so I'm going to assume that all of us want to be like Lazarus, that no matter what our earthly lives might turn out to look like, that the moment we die, God can't help but to send angels to come and carry us into the bosom of Christ. You know, I know that's very, like, artsy-fartsy, picturesque, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm not that like that, but I love that picture. I want to be like, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy that God says, oh, my goodness, Eddie died. We got, where are the angels? You know, we got to send them to go get him because he lived a life that truly loved me. You know, he wasn't perfect. But he lived a life that truly loved me. And because of that, I loved loving him. And I loved working through him. I loved the connection that we had. And that was everything. If that's you, you know, what you really, if, the, if you want that, you know, what you really need the most today is an eternal connection. You know, the greatest of news really is that Jesus died to connect with you. And not just to connect with you, but to connect with you eternally, forever, right? And no matter where you might be in your faith, whatever stage or maturity or quality you might be in your faith, um, the pathway to connecting with Christ and reconnecting with Christ is always through repentance, okay? Repentance means changing your life to actually make it look like who you believe in. What's that, right? Changing your life so that your life looks like who you believe in. And what that looks like practically is this, simply confessing your sinfulness, confessing the you know, you know, things that you've been doing that doesn't look like him, that doesn't prove that you're following him, and then making decisions to live for him. That's, it's that simple. It really is, right? You do that, and then you're going to start seeing him and experiencing him more clearly and powerfully in your life. Repentance reconnects. So um, today's story really is about eternal connections, isn't it, right? There's an eternal connection between who you believe in and how you live. There's an eternal connection between how you live and where you end up after you die. But the determining factor between those two connections is the most important connection of all, isn't it? And that's whether you're truly intimately connected with Christ. That's the difference. So if you're not connected to Christ today, I hope you receive today's message as a personal invitation from Christ to be connected to him. He loves you. He died for you. He died so to be connected to you. And that's it. Not to live a professionalized Christian life, but just to simply be connected to you so that you could live for him and understand how awesome he really is. And secondly, you know, if you are connected to Jesus today, awesome. I hope today's message really challenges you, motivates you to take a stock take of the quality of your faith, but hopefully it motivates you even more to stay connected with Christ and to live a life that proves your connection to Christ, to this world. Let's pray.